today's episode of Octal FM, we discuss the ups and downs of community management in video games. Hello and welcome to another episode of Oxl FM. I'm Saffron. And I'm Gelada. And today we're going to discuss community management and engagement in video games. Which sounds a lot like some kind of essay title. It does, it does. And I think the reason for that is I quite enjoy these kind of more discussion-based episodes we mm. have together. Mm, and uh, that lends itself to it. So we'll, uh, we'll dive straight in then, shall we? Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously one of the big things in the gaming industry is to engage with your community, right? Because that's how you get people interested in your game or keep the retention of your game high so people continue to, like, you know, either buy DLC or buy your next game or get invested in that particular publisher. Yeah, and also um, sort of drumming up interest in sequels potentially as well and getting people interested in your franchise as a whole, particularly if it's a new intellectual property, then you really want to get people on board and engaged and feel like they're a part of that. And if you don't manage to get that, that or, or you unfortunately do the opposite of that and maybe do a negative effect of this, which we're going to discuss in the episode, it can have some fairly serious consequences too. Uh, and it can really be quite detrimental to your game's effect. But if you manage it and you get it successful, it, it can make a game. It really can. It, it's amazing mm. what a difference it will make to people's uh, p- impressions of both the game and the developers themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons we wanted to discuss this was because, although it's always been quite important for game developers but also game publishers to get this right, this sense of um, engaging with the community as a whole, it's more so than ever. And that's primarily down to things such as now widespread access to the internet and social media because people talk about the games so so much more widely now, right? Because if you go back, say, you know, 15, 20 years... How did you talk about games? You talked about it, you know, at school, or you talked about it, you know, at work around the walk with like our friend who was happened to be into video games as well, sort of thing. Yeah. Or maybe or, the limited, um, you know, video games press and, and magazines and things like that. Exactly. I mean, now you can go on and watch like a review of a game on YouTube or something, mere like you know, hours after the game's release. And mm. but but back then. You you had to buy a, a copy of a magazine, and chances are the game was already out if there was a review of it, which means that you know you have to wait to get the game before you read the review, and the review may be a little bit outdated. I don't know. You know, it, it's such a different world that we live in now because yeah. there's you know huge amounts of increase in speed of technology for communications purposes. They had much more control, and everything was a little bit mm. narrower and a little bit simpler to manage and look after, and you know, and, and sort of shape that engagement and that press and interest before a game. Definitely. And now they don't have that same kind of luxury, unfortunately. Mm. And with the rise of things like crowdfunding services like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, things like Greenlight Access on Steam, where you can do kind of like pre-release games where like you play kind of like alpha versions of games. Mm. And games just in general having a wider appeal to more people now where the you have to kind of like engage with a wider variety of people rather than just your core gamer mm. it's so important to get that interaction correct 
So one of the ways we could look at this is in three stages. We can look at it both pre-launch, so before the game's released, while it's still being developed. We can look at it during the game's lifestyle, uh, lifespan, when the game is still out, maybe when there's more expansion packs coming out for it, that kind of thing. And there's also, to some extent, some level of engagement with the community after a game has essentially had its day. Be it it's a multiplayer game which isn't supported anymore, or it's just an old single player game that kind of like many sequels or many like, you know, different versions of it have been out mm. since. Yeah, and so what are some examples of some really good sort of pre-launch engagements, would you say? I mean, there a few things kind of spring to mind for me. I think particularly with the rise of um, crowdfunding and things like that, like, you know, engaging with your people who are interested in your game as part of your crowdfunding process, you know, whether that's through incentives or whether it's through actually driving the direction of the game. There's some really good examples of that. I mean, one of the ways that a lot of developers are doing it now, which costs so little, but it really creates a community around your game before the launch, which is just as important as engaging people that aren't necessarily interested in being part of the community, is doing things like um, developer Q&As. Yes. So one of the games mm. that uh, some, some myself and some friends have been playing quite a lot of was uh, Seven Days to Die. It's under one of these kind of like, you know, survival mm. kind of zombie-esque games, right? It's fairly, you know, there's, there's a million of them out there, but it's a pretty good game. And one of the reasons I really enjoy it is that the developer has a very strong sense of community with the, the player's who are playing his kind of like alpha version of the game Hmm. and he's always releasing kind of like Q&A videos on YouTube and kind of showing off what he's done this week on the game saying look I've managed to do this with this particular texture and we're going to add this feature and so far this isn't working but we're working on that and so and that makes people both excited for the, the game either before it's released or in this case before this particular version of the game is released but it also kind of gets them involved in the community as well. So it gets yeah. them part of the release almost. I think also that kind of bringing down the barriers between players and developers uh, really helps people become in some ways more sympathetic as well and more understanding about game development and about how, what goes into making a game. They then see the value more in you know new features or changes or bug fixes because those things perhaps before were just all bundled together and you didn't hear about how long it took or what was difficult or what was easy you just kind of got the updates or you got the game or the expansion or whatever but to see it progress and to grow makes you understand more and and have a deeper understanding of the games that you play and how they're made um, which then helps you appreciate it more and become more invested and that's that's a win-win in both ways you know gamers become you know more rounded in their understanding and developers get people who are more infused and sympathetic and also excited and that then generates its own appeal as well because then you get those promoters those people that are have bought into that kind of like their games now hype because of the uh, the engagement they can have with those developers, mm. and they're going to hype up other people as well, mm. and they're going to get more people involved. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really really fa- fantastic point because when you think of these big game developers and big game publishers like you know your EAs and your Activisions and your Blizzards and your Ubisofts, they do feel like these kind of like big monolithic corporates kind of walls that you can never see inside of. Yeah, it's like like they have their own agenda. And yes. you don't know what that agenda is. And it's kind of a mystery and you're at the whims of it to some extent. But sometimes these big developers do open up and then talk mm. about the community. But it's often the, it's the indie developers that do these kind of things because yeah. they're not they're not kind of like hampered by like media teams or public relation teams that are like saying, oh, you must say this or you mustn't say this sort of yeah. thing. And although that's important, especially on a like kind of a large corporate scale, 
it does make it feel more impersonal. So yeah. when those indie developers are being able to kind of discuss more openly with its community, you feel involved and thus you feel more excited for the game when it does come out and the features that it brings. Another way as well that developers can sort of get people interested, and actually this has progressed over time and sort of transformed, is demos and nowadays beta tests. So if you go back far enough and you think about like PlayStation 1 demo discs and things like that, that has kind of turned into beta tests, both large and small. Sometimes you have beta tests and large sort of pre-release demos for games where the game is is pretty much finished or it's a you know it's a limited bit of the game before the game comes out but that's part of the engagement that's part of the pre-launch engagement um they're not necessarily looking for direction about how the game should be built but instead they're looking to just get people excited about the game by releasing a limited version of it whether it's time limited or the things that you can do in the game I think a lot of the games that I got really excited for back when I was like in my teens sort of thing was those kind of games that I got to play kind of a, a time specific demo yes so like one of the very first playstation demo games i ever got to play was final fantasy 8 and i never played final fantasy 7 i kind of missed the boat on that one because mm. i didn't have a playstation 1 straight away i had it i was a nintendo kid and and that got me super interesting wanting to play final fantasy 8 and then that drove my interest in the rest of the final fantasy series and now you know i'm quite a big fan of the whole series as well so just that free disc where i got to play like a short snippet of the game like towards the beginning of the game like you say it was a finished product it was just a kind of a snippet of it mm. made me go and then buy the game when it was released and then got me interested in the rest of the series and it's hooked me ever since and all it was was just a short disc on a magazine yeah exactly and as well as those demos of finished games you now also get with the advent of games that are dependent on their online functionality and dependent on their balance so things like overwatch um, and street fighter 5 you now get games where they will have a period of free beta testing, maybe closed or open. And game developers can use that to assess how well their game performs under stress with a large number of players playing, because that's a very difficult thing to simulate as part of a development process. And if you don't do that or you don't use that effectively and you don't do that testing, then it can go catastrophically wrong for you when the game is actually released. You know, all of that hard work, even if you've been doing all of this updates you know and q and a's and all of that stuff before the game's released it can all go wrong if you you know if if the actual launch itself doesn't go well yeah 100 percent. and then that kind of comes in quite nicely to uh kind of our next segment which is the negative sides of pre-launch management and one of the things we, we haven't wrote in our notes there that i think was definitely worth mentioning was when you release a game and it doesn't work right yeah <laughs> um but we'll, we'll talk about that later uh we'll do some we'll talk about some of like the the pre-launch stuff so the stuff before the game comes out mm. and one of the biggest problems that uh we kind of came up with was the problem of overhyping something mm. right so the examples we've got here are games we've discussed in the past for example like no man's sky mm. most kind of like recent and famous example but then you've got other examples like spore and fable like yeah there's the fable peter molyneux promise isn't it like yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> he promises the world and you get like you know a village a slice of- <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's synonymous with his games isn't it it is and almost to his extent now you could almost argue that the peter molyneux effect is kind of like its own meme yes um, where you sort of expect and if you don't get it it's like not as interesting mm. like was didn't you do like an unfolding box or something yeah the like, curiosity cube right? that was it the curiosity and the cube, reward right? at the end was that you got to control the direction of their next game 
that was what you got if you if you were the last person to you know the you opened the cube at the end which is which is cool but that i think that's like the exception to the rule of don't <laughs> over, over don't overhype your yes. game because chances are it ain't going to be as good as you were saying it's going to yeah. be and so i think some of that is quite difficult as well because obviously game developers are super enthusiastic about the games they're building and the community can run away with that and that can be quite mm. hard to manage you know it, it may not even necessarily be their fault you know they may start things off and maybe start the off a little strong you can't necessarily control that internet yeah, hurt, you know that's a very difficult thing to do and actually it's interesting that we talked so negatively about large publishers like EA and Ubisoft and how they have these you know PR teams and all of that kind of thing constraining them in pre-launch but also to some extent there's a very good reason for that and things like No Man's Sky are, are an example of where yeah there wasn't that PR team like you do need sure that. that they weren't making promises <laughs> yeah you do you do need that but even it can happen to large companies as well right like we gave the example of Spore before um, when we were talking about was it No Man's Sky that we were talking about and we talked mentioned yeah, Spore yeah it was yeah that's and right. and that was a large game you know made by that was Maxis and EA and and that still suffered with an with an overhype issue uh, even with all of their teams. <laughs> So you definitely have to be, to watch out for that because mm. you essentially don't want to mismarket your game, right? You want to make sure that the game is what people think it's going to be, but just done really well as well. You want to make yeah. sure that it exceeds expectations, but it is exactly what they wanted. Yeah, agreed. And I think for me, the largest example of, of sort of bad pre-launch management is this trend towards some really quite dark behavior around pre-orders. Yeah, for sure. Anything where, you know, there's there's just this serious encouragement and things that are exclusive to pre-orders because publishers and it's it's understandable that they're chasing the money, but publishers, you know, wanting your money before you've had any chance to really understand whether a game's going to be good or not and just kind of encouraging that. In the long run that just damages the industry and it damages video games to to have that kind of thing when a game falls flat and people have pre-ordered it so much. That's just not good. You know, 100%. I mean, one of the notes I've mentioned there was about the Deus Ex augmented pre-order stuff. Did you hear, did you hear about that? I did not know. Essentially, the idea was is that like if enough people pre-ordered like certain versions of the game, like it would unlock certain reward tiers mm, for okay. augmenting your pre-order, but like getting it a few days early or getting like a special mission mm. or something. But it just was like, well, if no one pre-orders it or like yeah, then no one gets it, kind of thing. So you've spent your money, but you don't get that pre-order bonus. Yeah. It, it, it just felt very mismanaged and there was a lot of backlash to it. Yeah. And like you said, it's hard for developers not to want to, publishers, I suppose, more than anything else, isn't it? To want to get that kind of pre-order money because you're locking in the sale then. But it does, like you say, hurt the game in the long run. For yeah, sure. definitely. And it also hurts the reputation of the um, the studio as well. Mm. Like, it's always going to have that kind of like slightly negative stigma attached to it now where it's like oh well they, they wanted my money straight away and they're already expecting me to buy like you know season passes for DLC on mm. the pre-order it's like blow my neck just give me the game first yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> exactly uh, let me play yeah definitely so it's really important to get that kind of uh, pre-launch cor- uh, engagement correct uh, and done properly 
it, it does make all the difference. You know, you get uh, increased sales overall, which is surely the main thing for these kind of companies. Mm. You know, you get very positive reviews, which means that you can actively encourage things like review websites, like you know, your, your polygons, your IGNs, to talk about your game because you want them to kind of play push push your game for you. Mm. You create an active community who are going to promote the game for you as well through word of mouth, especially like we said at the beginning of the episode. Social media is so important. Yeah, I think that's a big piece in particular. You know, by looking after your community early on, you know, you're 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 really bedding those people in to fight your corner for you f- with your game and to you know get involved and to encourage other people to get excited as well. Mm, definitely. And I think also, like you've mentioned here early on in the development process is a great time to find, you know, those niggling issues and fix things and, and, and change direction based on feedback. You don't always want to listen to everything your community says, you know, because people get very, you know, strong ideas about things and you've got to have a vision. If you give everybody everything they want, your game is going to be a complete mess. Exactly. But at the same time, sometimes it's really obvious, right? Like sometimes the signals are obvious or sometimes it's just clear that there's a very uniform you know, response to a particular thing. Um, and you need to, even if you don't just respond to it verbatim exactly, you can take it on board and you can do things that work towards that or that still match your vision, you know, as a game developer. It feels like we're talking to game developers right now. Yeah, and I, I hope I hope we do. Because <laughs> I, I, I think we have a very similar feeling to a lot of kind of gamers around our kind of a demographic mm. where we want all these things and mm. we want developers... I say developers, it's publishers more than anything else, right? Yeah. To, to understand these things. Yeah. Um, it's so important that they do and sometimes they just don't. Do yeah, <laughs> it does feel like this is lost sometimes, for sure. It does. Uh, so that's kind of one of the ways that we can make games kind of release and its build up to its release uh, very positive but what ways can a developer this is almost more the developers now than the the Mm. publishers kind of make the community engage whilst the game has been released there's there's so many ways that they can do this and we've got some really fantastic examples to share with you there's some really great examples aren't there of games that do updates and patches really really well and make a big deal out of it it's it tends to be massively multiplayer online games or games where you know there's a huge online component like things like overwatch and league of legends and stuff like that but there's a lot to be said for those you know for almost marketing a patch and marketing updates yes you know and turning them into a thing giving them a name giving them a big like version number and And they advertise the release of the patch and and obviously that's that's hard work to do and to get that to you know to bundle that all together but i think it's going to cost money as well yeah but i think that that can really drive people again it comes back to that understanding as well you know you're, you're bringing people into the cycle of how things work like this is what we're doing we're excited we're we're working on things and we're, we're bundling it up together in patch 1.5 you know or, and we're changing the game to include this and to maybe fix this problem that mm. everyone's been really, really upset about. yeah exactly like one of the benefits of that is that although you've got the community already playing the game you're going to keep them really infused and really happy and kind of you know remain as players of your game but it Mm. also might bring back people who have maybe lost interest in the game because of a small problem like MOBAs are the biggest example right because maybe you got someone and they're just so sick of this particular champion with this particular ability Mm -hmm. or the numbers that it has the stats Mm -hmm. and they change it and they go yeah you're right that we're going to nerf that or we're going to fix this problem we're going to buff it oh sweet it's almost like a new game now yeah yeah because some of these updates can be so big they almost are like new games yeah i mean sometimes it is a new game as well one of my favorite examples is the story 
around um, Final Fantasy XIV, the massively multiplayer mm, online game. I really like that determination from Square Enix, where it's like we've got a bad Final Fantasy game, and we're just not going to let it lie. Like, like they're like, we just we just can't we just can't sleep at night knowing that no. we've made a game <laughs> that's got Final Fantasy on it and it's not great. So we just so they just completely remade the game. They shut it down and remade it, um, and. To do that in response to, you know, both professional feedback in terms of, you know, journalism and reviews, but also community feedback because it's an MMO and you you can't have an MMO without a community, you know, and to actually just be honest about it. You know, it's called A Realm Reborn and the storyline actually covers, essentially covers the game like being reset like yeah it's it's falling apart and being remade into what it is now which ended up being a really good game yeah and it's amazing and like and and it totally recovered from that and now it's one of the most successful mmos and yeah i I still play it sometimes i still go back to it way more than i've gone back to other mmos um because it is so good it's really really good that's a very very serious example an extreme example of managing your you know the life cycle of a game and the community another one of my favorite examples is the diablo 3 loot patch rework system i what i love about blizzard is that they they do both right they listen to their community and and people's sentiment but they also use all of the statistics that they gather about how people play games and they do some really really sophisticated analysis to then be like you know what if we actually rework this you know they basically just apply maths (laughs) to work out what they need to do and that entire overhaul of the progression system in Diablo 3 of how you obtained loot and the satisfaction feeling and the feedback loop and how they changed the auction house and all of that stuff you know that was a huge overhaul and it made a massive difference to the game and actually that made me revisit Diablo three when i was like wow okay because it basically meant that once you if you played through the game sort of casually to just get to the end then you were like well the whole thing just gets super frustrating and it just turns into Mm. a massive slow grind and then they were like okay we hear you like we're gonna make it basically just feel they didn't the game was still the same they just made it feel better in the way that they gave you loot and the way they rewarded you and that just made it a more rewarding game to go back to and play again for longer and redo bits and then they continued that process they just they just extended that end game over and over and they added more end game stuff and overhauled that whole thing as they went along and that's not an mmo there's no subscription service there um but they still just again that's another example of not letting it lie like they're like we just don't want we just don't want to leave this we just want to fix this and it keeps faith in the developer as well for like later on when they do either release another expansion pack for diablo 3 or when they eventually decide they want to make like diablo 4 people aren't going to have that sour taste in their Mm. mouth of well you know i like diablo but remember diablo 3's loot yeah i didn't deal with it and then you get some trust as well so now you're like if they make another diablo game you're like well even if it does have some problems we know that blizzard will do something about it and they'll sort it out and that's all kind of serious stuff that the, the developers can do. Mm. And it's impre- it's amazing how much an effect it can have. But there's also kind of like some more kind of fun, especially more gamey elements that mm. you can do to keep your community engaged as well. And one of the things that I really enjoy, and I've only did a few examples because I think you've got to experience it to be able to understand it. But it's things like using the game's narrative to mm. expand your community. So one of the games that you and I have been playing a lot recently has been like Elite Dangerous. We, we've really been enjoying that a lot. Yeah. 
And one of the things they do is all of their in-game news that is completely game-related, like, you know, the maths of the game, the kind of the ups, you know, the figures and numbers of the game, they always word it in such a way that it's, like, about the galactic news updates. Mm. And it's about, like, what the, the the superpowers think about this, this you know, when the aliens arrive. They, they, they release, like, news articles about what they thought the Federation thought about this. And it's just a way of promoting their game, but in a really fun way. Frontier developments who make elites dangerous, they, I don't know how they've managed to get it so right as well. Like they, yeah, and it, it feels, feels natural, doesn't it? It feels natural and it feels quite unique in the way that they've done it. And they look at their community and, which is not a huge community, you know, it's a big game and it's a popular game, but it's not, it's orders of magnitude smaller than things like Diablo 3. Yeah, it's not like, you know, Blizzard level of, of, uh, of commitment from a community. But they, Look at things that their communities community do. Like, for example, you have it's a space game, right? And you have um, races from you know different areas from of the galaxy to another area of the galaxy, or you have stuff going on with community driven groups like the fuel rats, the people that come and rescue you if you run out of fuel, and they cover that in their newsletter and in the in game news. And one of the other things that they can do, which is add kind of new elements to the game, is DLC. And this this can be really easy to do really well or really wrong. But when you get DLC right, it just makes your game feel... It feels loved by, by the community, which makes you feel really good about your choice of game. Mm. But it also adds more content to a game that you really love. So one of the games that I've written here in the notes, and we've mentioned this so many times, and it's because it's so it does it all all this really well. Is Overwatch again? Mm. Like all of its DLC is free, sort of. There's microtransactions if you want to like buy loot boxes. Yeah. Suppose. And that they add like you know new game modes and new maps and new characters, and it's all for free. And it it feels like you're getting more out of your game. So even though you've already you bought your game and you've paid your money, you're still being given a bit more to it. Yeah, and obviously that's a again, that's a cost for developers to continue to churn out content like that over and over. And so that's why I guess Overwatch, for example, it does blend it with the microtransactions for for loot boxes. One example of free DLC that I want to talk about, which I think is less covered, like because Overwatch is such a well-known game, right? Mm. Is Splatoon on mm-hmm. the Wii U? Yeah, it, it's so unlike Nintendo. Like it's so much not what Nintendo yeah. would do. They literally re- released no pay-for DLC, none at all. All of it was free, and it was all good DLC. It was like new maps, and maps are, must take a long time to make because they've got to balance it right, and they've got to get the the kind yeah. of the textures right, and they've got to get all the bugs out of it. And they added new weapons, and then they did things like community engagement as well, like um, like the Splatfest. Do you remember those? Yes. Uh, where like they you know get people to vote for things in the like in-game competitions to like vote between but you know what was your favorite Pokemon game or something like yeah, that, which yeah. is one of them. So they did, and that's fantastic because it gets people talking, and you really feel engaged with your game. And again, long term, that then has a good impact on things like the sequel, Splatoon 2, where, you know, people are going to feel more engaged. They're going to perhaps probably still be playing Splatoon because there's been all of this additional content and stuff going on the whole time that they're just going to roll straight into Splatoon 2. And And then it's never stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a great way of pushing that new game and that and that breathing life into that new IP, which is Mm. so rare for Nintendo in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's a great it's a great new IP from Nintendo. I have to say, like as an aside, yeah, I'm um, a big fan. I think we could probably do an episode on that. Yeah, I think we probably could actually. That's a really good because I I played it quite a lot. I don't play it as much anymore, but I, I definitely played it a lot. So 
there are so many ways that a developer and a, or publisher can look after their game that are really good and really strong ways that they can they can do that. But also, even after a game is out, there are still so many opportunities to make mistakes. And actually, one of the strongest ways that they can the, a game can suffer once it's released is inaction. You know, failure to listen to a community by either making unwanted changes, making changes that are completely contrary to what a community wants, but also not fixing known issues. We touched a little bit on, um, you know, games being launched and having problems. Um, for example, maybe they have always online functionality that requires an internet connection, even though it's a game that's perhaps a single player game or a solo game. As a recent example, for example, um, Super Mario Run, right? Like mm. that requires an internet connection quite a lot, you know, when you're playing just it. just an endless run game. Which yeah. is a problem if you're on the tube um, <laughs> and you want to play it. But that's, you know, that's an example of something that you think, well, you know, you're not, you're not looking after that game by keeping that around. You know, you need to, you need to sort of do something about that. And also a great example, of course, is SimCity, which is one of the great recent examples of yeah. both having massive technical issues on launch, which would have been negated by solving that problem in the first place before you even start. Um, and then struggling with sort of adding an offline mode back onto it. And they had a whole issue with the way that they managed that and the messaging around like, oh, the game has to run online because we do so much so much computation on our servers. And then they added the ability for it to work offline. And it's like, so you weren't doing as much as you said then. <laughs> like, yeah, like so just- that, that, what that is, is that's a PR team not talking to the development team yeah. and both basically telling other things to each other. Exactly. But as well as failing to listen to a community and, and, and that kind of inaction, there are other ways as well, aren't there? Yeah. And one of the ones we already touched on, for example, was the DLC part of it. Mm. And although I get DLC, companies want to make some extra money. And if they make new content, they should be paid for that content. I, I'm not a problem with that one. My biggest issue comes when this DLC basically is required to be able to continue to mm. play this game, particularly multiplayer experiences but not exclusively. So the main example I came up with was like map packs. So this this one is like your Call of Duty style thing, right? So you've got your core gamers of Call of Duty players that want to play with their friends in the evenings or something, you know, after work or after school, whatever. But you can't necessarily play with those community of friends because you don't own the maps, you know? And they want to play on the new maps because they bought them. But that kind of forces you to buy them. And I guess you could argue, well, that's the whole point. You know, that's why they've marketed it that way. And that way they guarantee more sales because of the kind of like friendships that people have. I just don't like the fact that then it kind of segregates the community Mm. between those that have and those that haven't. And it's a little bit evil, right? Like, you know, that's going to happen. And so you do it anyway. Like, you know that people are going to feel forced to buy your DLC and you're like, Instead of thinking, well, is that a little bit of a nasty move? Instead, you're like, well, no, that's great because we're going to make more money, and it's we're that like more pers- money. that pursuit of of money as the main goal compared to the things that we've discussed, like Overwatch's microtransactions and yeah. you know and and things and just having good quality paid content is you want to make money, but also you're not trying to be ridiculous about it. Like you're being yeah. honest, and you're and you're sort of like this is why we think it's justified. Instead of we're going to make a way where you know you have no choice. And all that does is alienate your fans. Mm. And one of the things that you, one of the ways you can alienate your fans even worse, however, is quite harsh treatment of your fans and your community, right? Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I've put down here is 
uh, harsh treatment of people over things like YouTube content. I'm sure everyone knows about like YouTube's like ID content checks, like where it'll like look at a video and go, hang on, I noticed that this has some music in it from this particular game, which is licensed to this particular company, and then it'll like you know, give you a flag and say, well, you can't do this. And then some developers go, no, it's fine, it's just a review. You know, people mm. want to review my game. Yeah, of course they can review the game. That gives us more hype. But then other companies, Nintendo is pretty bad for this, is they go, no, you mustn't do that. And that's it. The video is then taken down. Which means that a lot of people aren't willing to talk about that game on YouTube or, mm. you know, any other kind of like similar service because they don't want their content being taken down after they go through all the effort of making it in the first place. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, generally the reason why you see less coverage of Nintendo online on from sort of smaller people is exactly that reason they don't want to you know experience the wrath of nintendo coming down and shutting down all their hard work which is a real shame because nintendo could probably do with that especially on the online community because yeah although they've got quite a strong kind of casual fan base mm. that just kind of like they, they know nintendo as the gaming company like the hardcore market not even just a hardcore market anymore i suppose even just like the the gaming market as a whole mm. sees it quite negatively now yeah, exactly. um and with things like the the switch having that like that paid subscription service you know online paid subscription service they're going to want to maybe remedy that because they're mm. going to want to have that stronger more appealing online presence definitely definitely and there are other ways as well that you can really just be overly harsh like we're not saying that developers have to you know give everyone free access to all of their 3d models and their music and their sounds but if you're if you come down very hard on something that fans of your game have put a lot of love and care into then that sends a very negative message so things like fan-made modifications and fan-made projects those kinds of things yes it's they're not okay if you want to protect your code or you want to protect your intellectual property but also it's similarly not okay to be really aggressive about it like you know these are people that are super passionate about your game and you're and, and really like what you do you should that's why they made it in the first place yeah, because like, they really like what you've done yeah and they and they probably weren't stupid they probably knew that what they what they were doing was potentially risky you know but sometimes you don't have to like hire all of those people like sometimes that does happen i know you gave the example of portal and how portal sort of came out of a much smaller game and the team were actually hired by valve to make it Mm. but was it made using the source engine i don't know it might not have been but the example the other example that you can definitely was things like mods like the long war mod for XCOM. yes like it was really really popular it was argued to be the best way of playing the original game like more than the original game (laughs) so rather than going you must take this mod down they went um do you want a job yeah exactly (laughs) and make our next game even better yeah and it doesn't have to be that extreme but at the same time you know going extreme the other way is also not great and all that, that kind of leads quite nicely into kind of at the end of life cycle of games as mm. well, where either maybe it's a single player game on an outdated console, or maybe it's like a multiplayer game where the servers have been shut down because, you know, people just aren't playing the game anymore. And developers can be really, really clever about this, right? And in a very selective way, they can do such things as like giving old games away for free. Mm. Like there's a huge library of games online you can find where developers have gone well we don't make any money from it anymore so enjoy our old game um yeah or giving away like the source code for a game for example yes. so that, that people can use it to either learn from and see where like developers kind of what why they did what they did in the game or to maybe modify for their own purposes and make like their own fan games yeah definitely a great example of this is um id software and john carmack who 
you know, is sort of famous for, for doing this and is a big advocate of open source software where they've open sourced a lot of their game engines um, and, the, and the source code for their older games. Even in fact, all the way up to, you know, Quake 1, 2 and 3 and Wolfenstein 3D and things like that. You know, that's not necessarily super useful. You can't, it doesn't necessarily mean everything to everyone or to, you know, n- not every video gamer is going to benefit from the source code for a game being released. But it adds to that community and it adds to that, you know, it's like giving back a little bit. Yeah, and, definitely. And you definitely are helping people learn. And, you know, there are going to be people, game developers, who you know, are going to be able to look at some of that source code and learn from it and understand how to make games better. And actually, that's something I know we're sort of going back a step a little bit here, but talking about modding and, and mods to games, you know, you, t- you touched on uh, the XCOM mod. The Long War. The Long War, that's it. Releasing a good, strong modding tool sets for a game is a massive challenge for game developers and it's definitely not something that is a requirement for a good game but that can make a huge difference to the video game development community as a whole because so many people get into being a game developer from writing mods for games and so that's definitely. you know just as a general ecosystem benefit that's huge and how many games sorry how many mods are still being made for things like you know oblivion and yeah Skyrim, exactly and that you know. really extends that you know what it, a game's end of life if you know it can still be modded in terms of improving the graphics to bring it up to date or you know doing total conversions and turning it into a completely different game you know things like that and all of those things just simply make a stronger sense of community Mm. and allows people to feel more passionate about the people that have made the game as well which is only a good thing because at the end of the day that means when they make another game people are more likely to want to buy that game and that and as we said right at the start that is only becoming more important with these barriers being broken down you know no longer are you having to read about games in a in a video game magazine and nothing else you know you can actually message game developer you know john at bethesda or whatever when he tweets about how he's working on this cool new thing for an animation you know he's working on this cool animation or physics thing for a game that they're working on you know that barrier being broke taken down is so important to look after and to nurture it makes a big difference yeah definitely Uh, if you get it right like we said at the beginning of the episode it makes a huge difference and if you get it wrong it can be a huge detriment to your game yeah absolutely Um, and it can make a big big impact on your company as a whole for many many years to come yeah and this is hard stuff like this is really hard to get right and sometimes you can try as hard as you like but you as we said before you you can't necessarily know for sure what the internet is going to do you can't and we don't want to sound like we're authorities on the uh, subject at all like this is mostly just our opinions on the mm-hmm. matter and with that said we'd like to know what your opinions are yeah, on that definitely. too like maybe for example you think we're being too kind to companies and we're saying like no they should give us more stuff for free you know i can't believe that they're charging for any dlc whatsoever or maybe it's the other way around maybe you think we're being far too you know um give everything away for free too much or like yes of course they should ban people for making fan projects or using their content on youtube or something it's their ip it's their money you know and that's not wrong yeah yeah absolutely or or maybe you think that like you know they should actually make games rather than spend time talking to people on twitter about the game (laughs) they're making which i mean yeah stop writing blog posts about what you're doing and actually make (laughs) the game game. (laughs) just make the damn game (laughs) so yeah let us know yeah definitely Uh, what you what you think about that uh you can email us at show at octal.fm 
Uh, or you can tweet us at octalfm. Yeah, and finally, don't forget that you can go back onto the website, which is octal.fm, and you can download all of our episodes there. Particular episodes that might interest you, go and have a listen to our No Man's Sky episode, which was actually our very first episode. Um, Mm, Quite a lot of similarity to this one. um, And also our last episode about Stardew Valley, which is a really interesting game to think about these this community engagement and stuff because it was made by one developer um so it's really interesting to sort of think about it in that context Mm. but yeah i have been gelada and i have been saffron and catch us again soon for more discussions about games and, and generally geeky things hello and welcome to another episode of octal fm i'm gelada I'm Jalaba. <laughs> I'm so used to hearing that. I've got a identity crisis. What's going on? There's a there's a new one. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> the kitchen door won't open, and Derek is about to start me out. Hang on. No, no worries. Yeah, all right, all right. I'm opening it. I'm opening it. There. You can get in now. Go on. Don't, what? I've opened it! <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my god. <laughs> this is like the worst, the worst episode ever for Derek Meowing. On today's episode of Octal FM, we discuss the ups and downs of video game management. No, it's not video game management, it's video game community management.